Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Nick Fremantle. Um, I direct the, um, the Comprehensive Clinical Trials Unit at UCL. Um, and uh, today's speaker, uh, uh, Hakeem, comes, is our head of statistics there. Um, Hakeem joined us, oh, I suppose, um, some months before um, lockdown with a particular interest in uh, early phase studies and suddenly has found himself um, with a rush of, um, of, of activity around COVID-19. So he's extremely well placed to, um, to deliver today's talk. So it's um, with um, uh, great pleasure that I introduce my colleague, Dr. Hakeem um, Debbie, to talk for about 40 minutes, um, after which time we'll have an opportunity for some um, discussion, which of course you, and you, of course you can add your uh, questions uh, on the slider. Thanks very much. Hakeem, over to you. Thank you very much for this introduction. I'm going to start sharing my screen and start the presentation. So the title of this talk is the story of two COVID-19 trials at the CCTU. CCTU stands for Comprehensive Clinical Trials Unit at UCL. It's really a pleasure for me to give this lunch hour lecture. I myself, I'm a big fan of the lunch hour lecture series. This is the very first one that I attended, and I've managed to trace it back via my calendar and the website of, um, or the webpage on YouTube of the Lunch Hour Lecture Series. So the title, and that was January 2012, was What Has Facebook Done to Us? And this, is, this topic is still as relevant as, as ever given what has happened in the, in the world and in the USA, for example, in recent weeks. I don't think that Zoom existed at that point in time. So the uh, format was very different from the one of today. But I'm still very happy to give this talk today. So let's look at the outline of the talk. Firstly, just a few words on who we are as a trials unit um, at the level of UCL. Then I will talk in some details about Crown coronation, which is a prevention trial testing the MMR vaccine against COVID-19. Then FLARE, which is our early treatment trial testing two antivirals in a factorial trial design. And I'm going to explain what factorial trial means. And then obviously at the end, a few comments, final comments and remarks. Okay, so the CCTU. Um, we are part of the Faculty of Population Health Sciences, itself part of the School of Life and Medical Sciences within UCL. Uh, we're part of the Institute of Clinical Trials and Methodology. And in the real world, uh, pre-pandemic, we used to live uh, in this very fancy building on the second floor um, near Holborn in, uh, in central London. Great uh, office, great location, and I really miss it. And I do hope that we will be able to go back to the office in the near future. We are a small unit. Um, it was created in 2011, so relatively young. We are 45 FTEs approximately, and we've got lots of different studies uh, in various disease areas. We've got autoimmune disease trials, multiple sclerosis, obstetrics, cardiovascular disease, ophthalmology, and we cover all phases from those finding to large uh, confirmatory phase three or phase four trials. So that's it about us. This is who we are as a trials unit. Now, let's talk about Crown Coronation. It stands for COVID-19 Research Outcomes Worldwide Network for Coronavirus Prevention. It's an incredible acronym, right? So let me tell you about the story of Crown Coronation. So this takes us back to uh, March 2020, 11th of March 2020, um, 4.35 p.m. Uh, GMT time. The WHO declares that the novel coronavirus outbreak is a pandemic. On the 17th of March, six days later, we have our first Zoom call with some colleagues of us at the Faculty of Medical Sciences at UCL, colleagues in the USA at Washington University in St. Louis and in South Africa, University of the Witwatersrand. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, what did we know then? 
There was this report published in February 2020 by the WHO China Joint Mission on COVID-19. And this figure, figure five of this report, um, really caught our attention. It describes the trajectory uh, of uh, COVID-19 patients um, as a function of their um, health status, if you want, at, uh, at onset. So as you can see, and we all got to know this over the last few months, the trajectory is quite uh, binary. It's either recovery or death. And unfortunately, we've now discovered also that there is a category in between, which is called long COVID. I've read this report again, actually, while preparing this talk, and I think there are two key extracts that perhaps the world didn't take uh, notice at the time. Firstly, it says that the COVID-19 virus could cause enormous health, economic, and social impacts. The second main point is that much of the global community is or was not ready in mindset and or materially to act to contain the COVID-19 uh, virus. So that's one thing we knew. What else did we know? That effectively, um, we had this report from um, China published in the New England Journal of Medicine in February with almost 1,100 participants. And the median age of these patients from various regions in China with COVID-19 was 47. So it's not as old as we tend to think. 40% female and 6% of these um, patients uh, either ended up in ICU, reached mechanical, mechanical ventilation stage, or died. This was the state of the knowledge back in March 2020 when we jumped on our first Zoom call with our colleagues around the world. What did we decide? Obviously, we said, you know, we are a trials unit and uh, we said, let's do a trials, right? Let's do a trial. What are the three main questions to answer if we wanted to do a trial? The what, the who, and the how. So the what, what kind of trial? Should it be a prevention trial, early treatment, or late treatment? What treatment, what intervention should we choose? When it comes to the who, should it be in the general population or specific subgroups of interest? The how, should it be placebo controlled? What study design can we choose? Where are we going to do this trial? How can we collect the data, especially given the current circumstances? How to administer the treatment? So these were all the questions that we had to answer. And I'm now going to take you through, you know, how we try to answer all of these questions for Crown. So let's start with the what. What phase, what treatment or intervention? And this is now the story between March and June, July of last year. What we had in mind is uh, the importance of prevention. Benjamin Franklin uh, said, uh, is known to have said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you think about the process of COVID-19 and the amounts involved, this is obviously extremely accurate. Pre-exposure is much cheaper than treating patients. And treating patients who have reached hospital stage or ICU is even more expensive. So we had this mindset in mind. At that point in time, drug repurposing was the main approach. There was this very helpful article in Nature Biotechnology from February 2020 uh, with the title, Coronavirus Puts Drug Repurposing on Fast Track. And they had this table, super helpful for us, of various drugs that had been tried already in China in various clinical trials. This table, interestingly, includes remdesivir, which turned out to be the first drug approved by the FDA in the US for treatment. And the last row of the table, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. And chloroquine was our first choice for the study for Crown. Now, obviously, you want to know why chloroquine? What early evidence did we have? Well, it was known to decrease viral replication. It was known to treat pulmonary diseases. And at that point in time, coronavirus was known as a pulmonary disease in the first place. It treats pulmonary hypertension, pneumonia. 
It prevents cytokine and chemokine storm. There were some evidence of this. And there were evidence also that it may prevent viral entry into cells. It's a very um, successful drug. I mean, chloroquine has an extensive track record against malaria. And it's available easily and worldwide. And it's not expensive. So as a prophylaxis treatment, prophylaxis means prevention, as a prophylaxis treatment, it did make sense. So what were the objectives of Crohn coronation version one at that stage? What did we have in mind? We wanted to demonstrate, firstly, that chloroquine is superior to placebo. We wanted to observe a reduction in the proportion of participants in the trial becoming symptomatic with COVID-19 if they were in the chloroquine arm compared to the placebo arm. There was another question of interest, whether a medium or a low dose of chloroquine could be non-inferior to the high dose. From a more operational perspective, we wanted to progressively allocate more and more participants to an active arm. Now, in terms of design, we were going to do a large international placebo-controlled trial with 55, up to 55,000 participants. We had four treatment arms in mind, a placebo arm, a chloroquine low dose, weekly tablets, medium dose twice weekly, and a high dose uh, arm with daily uh, tablets of chloroquine. The primary endpoint was going to be incidence of symptomatic COVID-19, and we were interested in a Bayesian design with frequent interim analysis for efficacy, futility, or harm. We, um, we had uh, obtained funding from the COVID-19 Therapeutics Accelerator. We had obtained 9 million for Crohn coronation. We were very happy. I remember the day uh, we heard the news. Uh, it was um, a feeling of joy, really, that we were going to do something about the pandemic. For those of you who don't know the COVID-19 Therapeutics Accelerator, it's a group of funders. It's, um, it includes the Wellcome Trust. It includes the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It includes the Dell Foundation, the Avast uh, Antivirus uh, Foundation as well. I don't know if they have a foundation, but <laughs> I've remembered that Avast is part of this because Avast is an antivirus company for, uh, for computers and laptops, etc. And it also includes famous donors, including uh, Madonna. We even tweeted Madonna at the time. We tweeted Madonna to, to, thank, uh, to thank her or her organization, uh, but they never replied, uh, which is rude. But anyway, so we had 9 million uh, to run Crown. And it never happened. Crown never happened for three main reasons. Because of twice impeached Donald Trump, because of the Lancet and the NEGM fiasco, and because of evidence from post-exposure trials that started to emerge that showed that chloroquine may have low efficacy to avoid symptomatic COVID-19. So I'm going to talk about these three reasons now. <laughs> Firstly, twice impeached Donald Trump, Donald Trump takes uh, hydroxychloroquine out of the blue, and that was April, if I remember well, or May of 2020. At that point, science had been replaced. Hydroxychloroquine was unproven to have any benefits for patients. They were obviously in vitro evidence that it was able to inhibit replication of the virus, you know, hydroxychloroquine, but there was no clinical evidence at that stage. Hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are associated with rare cardiac side effects. But um, Donald Trump decided to take, uh, to take this drug as prophylaxis. We knew that this would add additional challenges for us in terms of recruitment because of all of the media attention for you know, recruitment for our future trial that was about to start. People would think, if Trump takes it, then most probably I should not take it. Or if Trump takes it already, then why do we need a trial? That was the main or the first main reason. Then there was the Lancet and the NEGM fiasco. They, um, they published 
studies based on a data set that was pr produced by Surgisphere, which is a um, company that includes a sci-fi writer, among others. Uh, and these papers showed, based on fabricated data, that hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine were not um, efficacious um, prophylaxis or treatment interventions for COVID-19. At that point in time, governments and asked for some COVID trials to be temporarily paused. Now, we knew at that point in time that this would be very difficult for us uh, to recruit. The drug effectively, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, had lost a lot of credibility in this big fiasco. And I'm using the word fiasco because in the end, what happened is that uh, these two papers were retracted. The authors have recognized that they never had access to the raw data. And turns out the raw data had been fabricated. And now the third reason why it didn't uh, happen, which is probably a bit more scientific, is that some evidence started to emerge from post-exposure prophylaxis trials that there was no difference between chloroquine and placebo for prevention of um, COVID-19, the development of the disease, for people who had been exposed uh, to the virus via their contacts. And that's why we call these studies post-exposure prophylaxis. They were contacts of what we call index cases. So people who have tested positive. And so these people we knew or were known to have, um, to have been in touch with uh, positive cases. And they were given chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine as a uh, potential prophylaxis, but it turns out that, you know, after a certain period of follow-up, there was no difference between the groups, chloroquine versus placebo. So effectively, we were back to square one. So now let's go back to 20 to today. We still had uh, prevention in mind, right? I mean, one ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. However, the thinking had evolved and we were considering vaccination. Why is that? Simply because it's much more practical as a prophylaxis treatment. You just need to take one injection or two injections, as we know, depending on the vaccine uh, maker, and then you can continue your, uh, your daily life. If uh, it was tablets like chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, then you know, people would have had to take these tablets every day or twice a week, et cetera, which is much more cumbersome. So our thinking had shifted towards vaccination. We chose the MMR vaccine. Why is that? Because obviously, firstly, we are not a big pharma company, so we are not in the business of developing a specific vaccine. But they were, interestingly, immunological as well as epidemiological evidence that the MMR could have a role to play in, um, in the pandemic. So firstly, immunology. We know that live attenuated vaccines like the MMR may train our innate immunity, our ability effectively to fight infections in general in a non-specific way. We also know that the specific antibodies that are um, produced by the body when um, it is faced with the live attenuated vaccine, the live uh, attenuated viruses effectively in the MMR vaccine, these specific antibodies may have cross-reactivity to SARS-CoV-2. Cross-reactivity means that they could also bind to uh, SARS-CoV-2 because the spike proteins of these viruses are not too different. From an epidemiological perspective, um, we were then in July uh, of 2020, and there was some evidence already that there were less cases of COVID-19 amongst people who had recently received an MMR vaccine or a BCG vaccine. And in the past, there have been evidence that the rate of various infections and diseases had gone down after the MMR was introduced in the country. Now let's look at the immune system. 
it effectively, I am simplifying everything here, but it has two main pillars. The, immune, the innate immunity on the one hand and adapt, adaptive immunity on the other hand. So innate immunity, what is it? It works with recognition of pathogens via pattern recognition receptors. So it's non-specific and it involves reactions, reactions such as phagocytis, cell locomotion or cytokine production. Adaptive immunity is completely different and it involves specialized T and B cells. It's a slow process. It involves um, our lymphocytes, so white blood cells, and it is antigen specific. Effectively, we're talking about our long-term immunological memory. It's interesting to note that our innate immune cells can show also adaptive characteristics. So the specific vaccines that have been developed in recent months, including the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, the Novavax vaccines, and all of the other vaccines, they are effectively exploiting the adaptive immunity uh, side of our immune system. And we then thought that we could actually focus on the other side, on innate immunity. So let's talk a bit more about immunity, trained immunity in particular. Here, firstly, this is how it works with a traditional vaccine with our immune memory. So this is the trained, um, the adaptive immunity. So we give the traditional vaccine, it activates our adaptive cells, for example, the Pfizer vaccine, and the antibodies from the B cells and the T cells either block the infection or kill the infected cells. However, if we were to give the BCG or the MMR vaccine, what would happen is that our innate cells, the other side of the immune system, the innate cells would be pre-activated, would be warmed up, if you like. And what will happen would be that monocyte cells would actually be able, hopefully, to engulf and kill the virus. When it comes to the coronavirus infections, how would it work you know, in practice, in time? So we would give the MMR vaccine, and this would create an innate immune response. It would you know, activate our immune system, the innate side of it. We would then or the participants would be infected with the coronavirus potentially. And what would happen then is that we would see a, an increased response. It would be boosted thanks to the fact that the immune system would have received a prior vaccination prior to the infection with COVID-19, uh, with the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus. So that was the trained immunity side of things. Now, um, innate immunity side of things. Now look at uh, this slide, and this is now with respect to adaptive cross-reactivity. We've got um, the spike proteins of the um, measles virus that are not too different in shape. There are some similarities with the um, spike proteins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So the antibodies that are generated by the uh, measles vaccine may also bind to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So we had these various pieces of evidence that the MMR may play a role in the pandemic. And that was the what. This was our treatment. Let's now look at the how. What are we going to do? We want to test, as I have said, whether the MMR can prevent COVID-19 or decrease its severity. So the trial is very traditional and very simple. It's a two-arm parallel trial where participants are registered and screened for inclusion-exclusion criteria and then randomized one-to-one, -one, which means 50-50, between the MMR and the placebo groups. We would follow them up for 60 days, and our primary endpoint is... PCR confirmed um, COVID-19 with symptoms. In terms of sample size calculation, how many participants do we need to demonstrate that um, the MMR has an effect if we assume that it has an effect? 
we are going to recruit 5,000 participants in total, 2,500 per arm. And on this plot, you've got the sample size calculation that we have done via simulations. And I'm going to explain how we did it. Firstly, what is plotted? It's the probability to declare efficacy as a function of the sample size per arm. We've got three curves that um, correspond to three different event rates in the placebo arm of the trial. And by event rates, I mean the proportion of participants in the placebo group who would develop COVID-19 during the course of follow-up. And it's important to remember that these participants, they are COVID-free at the start, but some of them would actually be infected and develop the disease during the course of follow-up just because of their daily activities. Um, the probability to declare efficacy, it's defined in a Bayesian way. We want to demonstrate that the probability that the odds ratio, and I'll explain what the odds ratio is, we want to know that the probability that the odds ratio is less than one is greater than 95%. So as I said, there are multiple uh, inputs into this calculation, but we calculated that we needed 2,500 participants in total. And this is based on an expectation that the odds ratio would be at least 0 0.7. So let me now talk about the odds ratio. Firstly, it's important to note that many clinical trials have a similar design to what I just showed, right? We've got two treatment arms and a binary endpoint. Yes, no. In our case, yes, development of COVID-19 or no. So effectively, we can summarize the results in a two-by-two two table. So here we've got our 5,000 participants. These are hypothetical numbers. Obviously, we haven't finished the study, but these are our 5,000 participants broken down 50-50 into MMR and placebo, and we would have here, hypothetically, a 10% event rate. 500 out of 5,000 people would have developed COVID-19. The breakdown of these 500 is 150 in MMR, 350 in placebo. If there was no effect of the treatment, you would not expect to see an imbalance. You would expect to see 250 participants in both study groups. It's not the case in this hypothetical example, which would um, imply here that perhaps the MMR is indeed effective at reducing um, COVID-19 as a prevention trial, as a prevention treatment. So now, what is the odds? The odds is the ratio of people who do and who do not have the event in the periods of interest or 60 days after receiving the MMR. In the example that I had in the table, we had 150 participants out of 250 who developed the disease. So the odds are 150 divided by 2,500 minus 150, which is 0 0.06. And these are the odds of developing the disease in one treatment arm. Now the odds ratio is just, is just the odds in the treatment arm divided by the odds in the placebo arm. In this case, it was 0 0.39, this odds ratio. We do not expect to see something as dramatic as this. We just hope that the um, MMR is going to provide an odds ratio less than 0.7. And if it is the case, if it is true that the MMR has an effect on uh, the coronavirus, then 2,500 participants in both study arms should be, should be enough, should be sufficient for us to see this in the data. As I said, it's a Bayesian trial. So in Bayesian statistics, what we do is that we, we put distributions on the quantities that we try to estimate. And in this case, it's the odds ratio that we try to estimate. So on the left-hand side here, what you have on the slide is the distribution that we have applied on the odds ratio prior to the start of the study with 50% of the mass uh, less than one and 50% of the mass greater than one, which effectively means that, you know, we don't know whether it is going to uh, have an effect. And then 
in the Bayesian approach of, um, in, or in the Bayesian mechanics, if you want, you combine your data with your prior on the odds ratio to derive a posterior distribution for your odds ratio. And as I said before, what we would like to have is a shift to the left of this distribution where 95% of the mass would then be below one, which would mean that we have 95% certainty that the um, odds ratio of the MMR compared to placebo is less than one. Let's now look at the key operational feature of the trial. It's still the how, right? I've just described the study design and the sample size calculation. It's part of the how. We also need to consider how effectively we're going to collect the information that's going to come into the calculation. This trial is a virtual contactless trial, obviously, given the situation. So it would involve self-reporting of the eligibility by the participants as well as their adverse events and their outcomes. People in remote areas, it's an international trial, uh, not only in urban centers, would then be contacted by SMS every week or so in order to collect uh, information on their health, whether or not they are healthy or if they have been diagnosed with the disease. And these SMSs would then feed into the main trial data sets. Achieving this sort of virtual contactless trial from an operational perspective and database perspective is a gigantic challenge for us. Uh, and it has um, been a success and we've collaborated with um, Telerivet and other um, SMS companies that have helped us. Some of these companies have helped us for free uh, given the situation and we are very grateful to them. And lots of work, uh, lots of work from all of our um, operational um, uh, colleagues uh, have, has gone into, into, uh, into this, into the contactless nature of the trial. Let's now move on to the who. Who are we um, considering for the study? Initially, we had in mind healthcare workers. It was known that you know there was a high incidence and some severe cases of COVID-19 amongst healthcare workers because obviously they are exposed to um, to sick patients. However, via a protocol amendment, we have progressively expanded the um, eligibility to key workers as well as other adults at risk of exposure to SARS-CoV-2 due to their work. So now we are effectively recruiting in South Africa, among others, any adults at risk of exposure to the virus. It's not only healthcare workers anymore, but obviously healthcare workers are still part of the potential uh, pool of participants. The study is ongoing. The study is live. Uh, here is our website. This is where everything starts from the participant perspective. They click on check your eligibility and then uh, they go through the motions. Um, it's enrolling. We have enrolled participants in the US, in the United Kingdom. And now we are focusing on the other countries, which include Zambia and South Africa currently. And we hope very soon to start recruiting in Zimbabwe and in Ghana. So that was the story of Crown so far. We are recruiting. Um, we hope to be uh, recruiting rapidly over the next few weeks and months. And we hope to have results uh, by mid-2021. Let's now talk about FLARE, which is the second trial of COVID-19 in our department. So what does FLARE stand for? Favipiravir plus minus lopinavir an RCT, RCT means randomized control trial, of early antivirals. So I'm taking you back now to March and April 2020. What did we know at that point about viral infections? As I said before, drug repurposing is the first option uh, when faced with a new virus. If someone is infected in general, not only for the coronavirus uh, too. Early treatment gives best results. 
combination treatment, think of HIV, dual or triple therapy tend to work and tend to work well. And dose optimization is an important topic. It might be important that to give higher doses for COVID-19 than with other diseases. In terms of drug development, we in general separate the preclinical stage to the clinical stage. And in both stages, we go from learning to confirming. In the preclinical stage, from in vitro to in vivo studies, and then in the clinical stage, from phase one to phase three trials. FLARE is a phase two trial, so it's somewhere in the middle between learning and confirming, but more leaning towards learning here. And learning often is embedded in PKPD models, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, which means what does the drug do to the body and what do, does the body do to the drug? So what did we know at that point in time, March, April, from PK modeling in vitro? It was known that obviously antivirals needed to be started early within five or seven days of infection. Hydroxychloroquine, as well as lopinavir-ritonavir, a HIV therapy, and interference as monotherapy would have perhaps 30 to 60% inhibition of replication. Now, remdesivir was predicted already from in vitro models to achieve 87% inhibition. Interestingly, there is a drug called favipiravir that has the same mechanism of action, but is available as an oral formulation instead of intravenous. So this is the focus of FLARE. We are focusing on lopinavir-ritonavir and favipiravir. These are the two drugs that we are testing in the study. What clinical evidence did we have at that stage? For favi, firstly, favipiravir, it's um, a drug that is um, active against a broad range of viruses, including yellow fever, Ebola, and influenza. It's mostly an influenza uh, drug, though. As I said before, similar mechanism of action as remdesivir, but oral formulation, so much more practical again, especially for early treatment when people are not in hospital. Shown in vitro to be active in terms of inhibition of replication, and there was very little detail available, but there were claims from Chinese authorities that of moderate effectiveness for patients treated with favipiravir. There was a uh, there were a few news um, reports or articles published already in March 2020 uh, about favipiravir as a potential treatment for uh, COVID-19. What evidence did we have for lopinavir-ritonavir, which is this HIV therapy? From an in vitro perspective, they are known, lopinavir is known to have uh, some action against coronavirus. And then there was this study by or Tsao, I don't know how to pronounce et al, in the NEGM with 199 patients in early 2020 in China. And they were randomized between control or lopinavir, ritonavir. And there was no difference, as you can see on the plot, uh, in terms of time to improvement. However, in a postdoc subgroup analysis, there was a small difference in mortality for the participants who were uh, treated within 12 days after the onset of symptoms. So effectively, these were the clinical, um, this was the clinical evidence that we had for both uh, treatments. So now let's move on to the, to the how. Study design-wise, we thought we would do a two-by-two two factorial trial. What does it mean? We, so there are effectively two randomizations because there are two treatments. The first randomization for the first treatment, say lopinavir, is between placebo or lopinavir, right? And then let's look at the participants on the right-hand side who would have been allocated the placebo treatment of lopinavir. They would then be randomized to either favipiravir, the other drug, or the placebo of favipiravir. And it's the same reasoning on the left-hand side for the participants randomized to lopinavir. They would be either randomized to the placebo of favi, or they would also receive favipiravir. 
effectively, we've got a quarter of the participants that receive both drugs. It's um, the left-hand side box. A quarter of the participants receiving two placebos. And then we've got participants who receive just one of the two treatment drugs. Now, there is another way of presenting this data. It's in, a, it's in the format of a two-by-two two table again, um, where you've got the control participants who are the participants who don't receive uh, any of the two treatments. And then we've got the participants who receive A plus B and some participants who receive just A some participants who receive, who watch, who receive just, just B. Now, what are the questions, the research questions of interest for FLARE? Firstly, does lopinavir reduce viral load in the upper, upper respiratory tract compared to placebo after five days of treatment? Same question, but for FAVI. So we are effectively interested in viral load and how the viral load evolves uh, with the drug. Uh, after five days of treatment. And then an important question, a key question is, do both treatment interact synergistically? So do they complement each other, if you like? Like, do you get an additional boost uh, on top of the effect of Favi and on top of the effect of Lopinavir by giving both treatments together? So this is what we called synergy. So the primary endpoint, as I said, is the viral load in the upper respiratory tract. This graph actually shows the sorts of data that we will have. Effectively, we'll have the viral load at day one for patient one in blue and their viral load at day five. Same thing for patient two. We've got their viral load at day one and their viral load at day five. And as you can see here, it is expected that with time, the viral load will decrease. Right. One could say here that obviously the viral load has decreased more markedly for patient one that, than patient two, but it has decreased for both. Right. And this is at the patient level. Now, if we look at the data or at the trial itself at the group level, right, what do we expect to see at baseline? Via randomization, as I said, this is a randomized trial, the groups are expected to be similar at baseline in terms of viral loads. We don't expect to see massive differences between the group that has received two placebos and the groups that receives two, uh, the two drugs at baseline, right? Um, and what we hope to see is that thanks to the treatment, the viral load will decrease more markedly in the favipiravir group. The... the um, straight lines that we have here represent the 95% confidence intervals around the mean values calculated for the groups, right? And what matters is to see a difference at the end. We have powered the study in order to identify a 0.9 log 10 difference on the viral loads. And to give you an order of uh, magnitude, a one log 10, corresponds to a 10 times increase in copies of the virus per ml. Sample size-wise, we are going to recruit 240 participants, 60 participants per group, and this gives us 90% power to detect this difference that I mentioned, 0.9 log 10, for the main effects. What do we mean by main effects? The effect of one drug compared to placebo, or and in addition, we've got 80% power for the interaction to detect a difference of one log 10 difference by giving both drugs together on top of the main effects. Let's now move on to the who. Who are we recruiting? Well, effectively, anybody, adults, obviously, uh, in their first week of illness. The trial is currently recruiting. It's recruiting um, in and around London. So if anybody in the public is in this unfortunate situation, do get in touch with the Royal Free Hospital, Dr. David Lowe. Um, they will come to your place. They will give you the drugs that you have been randomized to. The study is effectively currently recruiting and it also applies if you know anybody uh, who is in this situation in or around London. Final comments. 
the last part of my presentation. I want to talk about the importance of these two trials. In my opinion, obviously I'm biased, but they are very important. Innate immunity, it's the second pillar of the immune system, right? Obviously, the specific vaccines have shown remarkable efficacy, and they've exploited the adaptive immunity part of our immune system. The other pillar is available. We need to make the most of it. It might even be that innate immunity trained by the MMR or the BCG vaccine may boost the efficacy of specific vaccines. This would be the topic of another trial. We would need to raise funds if there is, um, uh, if there are funders in the audience or rich um, uh, philanthropists do get in touch with us. We are very interested in this question. Uh, and otherwise, the MMR and the BCG are very well-established vaccines, right, with very well-known safety profiles. So for future pandemics, they could be reused as first line of defense. Um, while we wait for the development of other specific vaccines. But thank God, the MMR, um, um, the mRNA uh, technique has uh, shown that vaccines can now be uh, developed very fast. Now, for flare, why is it important? Firstly, vaccines do not have 100% efficacy. So there will be people who will, be, who will get sick. Some variants, we may have some surprises with the variants. Some variants may escape the specific vaccines and our innate immune responses. And it's better to have early treatment than to find, I mean, it's super important to find treatments that work in late stage disease, but it's even more important public health wise to find treatments that work at the early stage of the infection. Second, uh, comment that I want to make. These studies, they are gigantic collaborative efforts. Dozens of people, dozens of people are involved, including um, some of the names that I have mentioned on these slides. And there are many, many more people who I have had the chance to work with. It has been a pleasure over the, nine, the last uh, 11 months now, I think almost, or 10 months. Thanks to the funders. Thanks to the COVID-19 Therapeutics Accelerator, who have now allocated, I mean, up to October 2020, 98 million US dollars in grants. Thanks to LifeArc, a UK charity uh, that has funded Flare. And this is the end of my presentation. I, um, I'm not wearing a tie today. I'm not a black hat. Uh, but if there are any questions, I would be very happy to answer. And thank you very much for the attention. Thank you very much for the presentation, um, Hakeem. That's uh, you've done a lovely job of covering a lot of ground. Uh, we do already have a couple of questions in the um, in in the chat. Um, a very relevant one to start off with: um, information and misinformation. Jill's asking the question: To counter pernicious misinformation, could all COVID nineteen trials and all COVID nineteen mass uh, vaccination programs? publish yellow card data on adverse side effects? Did you get that? Uh, I Yes, I heard the question. So I, so um, the, I guess the, the question is really about transparency. So, and transparency and, and, and trust in clinical trials is such an important thing. So do you have any thoughts? Have you any learnings on transparency from the, um, from the COVID-19 era? Yes, yes, absolutely. So I think it's a great point. It's very relevant, especially in this era where we've got vaccine hesitancy or vaccine skepticism. Um, it's a great, great thought that we should, as much as possible, uh, publish um, our side effects, the side effects, as well as the adverse events that we see in any of the clinical trials. And from my perspective, it might also be an idea to publish data on side effects from the vaccine rollout programs that are currently um, taking place around the world. Um, lots of people have been vaccinated already in the UK as well as in Israel. So it would be good to know and to have details around these side effects. Obviously, the main difficulty here is um, data protection. 
right? Data protection and um, security or safety of uh, or possibility of re-identification of the participants. No one wants to know that, uh, no one wants to uh, be in a position where they can be re-identified that they are the participant who experienced that very bad side effect in say the Pfizer trial. It is known that the Pfizer trial was stopped at some point for adverse events, but there are very few adverse events in those trials. So it might well be that by making the data public, there will be a chance of re-identification. So we need to balance these um, various aspects, but overall, we have to do all we can to uh, counter vaccine skepticism and hesitancy. Yeah, and, and, and I think um, if there's a vacuum, it's clear that that's very quickly filled with other um, other issues. So, you know, when the um, when the um, the Pfizer vaccine was the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine was first being implemented um, in, in the UK, first being used in the UK. Um, I, I had I had colleagues in the NHS describe um, you know very high rates of fever and things. Thirty percent of people experiencing fever after the vaccination. Um, which just wasn't seen in the large exposure in the randomized trials. And actually, in truth, wasn't going on in the NHS either. Um, but, you know, people's anxieties and expectation um, led these sort of um, the, the, these stories to go around. And, and, you know, we're surrounded by information and misinformation. So I think this is a really important um, agenda. Um, another question um, from Anonymous this time. Um, uh, for Crown, are new arms planned to be added? Um, um, some trials labelled as adaptive platforms have just been a series of two-arm trials. Can I ask your thoughts? Uh, that is a possibility for Crown. Um, Crown is a platform trial. We are starting with the MMR um, with 5,000 participants. And depending on how things go and where the pandemic goes in particular, we might add additional treatments afterwards. It might be that the MMR will have been shown to be uh, effective. And if that is the case, the MMR would become the backbone treatment and we would add additional treatments on the platform, perhaps even uh, a combination of a specific vaccine versus um, and or with without the MMR, for example, that wouldn't that would not be the case if the MMR becomes the backbone treatment. Another option, for example, would be a molecular mask in terms of prevention. I know that this is currently developed in the School of Pharm Pharmacy at UCL. So we could combine those treatments either as parallel arms or factorial trial events in the same way that uh, we've done for uh, for flare. Um, it could be that the trial will stop after the first uh, intervention, and it will depend on uh, the finances, it will depend on the state of the pandemic and whether it is still relevant at that point. Yeah, I think the point about combination treatments, I mean, the, when we look back at the success on, of um, therapies for, for HIV and AIDS, um, it has been combination therapy, which has really um, um, led the way there. So. Um, you know, I think I, I think the idea of of examining that flexibly, and that's personally why I'm I'm so enthused by the flare trial because it's beginning to look at um, using those um, those kind of learnings and taking them into um, into this area. Um, um, Jill's got another question for us. Many older people are minimizing outings and external contacts to minimize infection possibilities. How do trials adjust to prove accurate effectiveness? And of course, the um, attack rate in the um, in the Pfizer studies, um, the Pfizer study, and actually in the um, in the uh, AstraZeneca Oxford study, um, uh, was really very low with a very low number of events. So what what can we do? And and AstraZeneca particularly um, only included um, uh, younger people. So um, so what can we do about that, Tiki? Excellent question. Excellent question. I am not sure that I have got. Um, I've got obviously the answer for this. I can think of various ways to approach this. Firstly, um, 
large phase three trials, it's only part of the big picture, right? There are phase one or if not phase two trials, and there are also in vitro and in vivo studies that are done prior to the large trials. So they are just one piece of the puzzle. If older people are not part of the large trials, at least in the first instance, it doesn't necessarily mean that the vaccine is not going to work on those populations. It is just the case that initially they were not included in, say, the AstraZeneca trial, but they had preliminary evidence from PKPD data as well as um, phase two trials that the vaccine was effective on uh, older participants. So that's one thing to note. With respect to uh, the fact that the attack rate is very low and that older uh, um, older citizens tend to uh, minimize outings, it's a fact. It's a fact and I don't think that we can uh, think about it. Uh, go and take the tube just to see if they catch the virus. So it's 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 a very complicated. It's an excellent question. Um, I, I think I, I would add just really know at this stage what we can I, do. I would add just one extra point. Um, we're in the situation you mentioned phase four. We're in the situation for some phenomenal natural experiments. So the state of Israel, for example, has a, has achieved a very high initial rate of um, vaccination. Um, and many of us are watching um, the progress of the virus there with great interest now, um, because that shows where we can be a, 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 a larger con country with greater logistical challenges to, um, to achieving um, high vaccination rates um, in, in, in a few months' time. So I think we can... You know, the trials, as you say, are part of the story, um, but we um, we move on to um, you know to to seeing what actually happens in the real world to hopefully confirm there um, as well. Um, uh, Very much overall. Absolutely, overall, I was just I've going got to, to add ask actually the question. That, oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. Carry no, on. No, 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 carry on. No, no, sorry. I, I was just I was going just going to, to ask okay, a general fine. question. So I was. We've got a few minutes left. Um, uh, and um, uh, the general question comes to my mind. I think that we've learned a fantastic amount in the last um, um, months in, in the context of trials, in the context of this pandemic. Um, what, what do you think those key learnings have been? It's, um, it's a very good question, I must say. It's a very broad question also. Key learnings, firstly, I think it's really important to do the homework before starting a trial in terms of, you know, in vitro evidence, in vivo evidence potentially, and um, whether small trials have, um, have shown any signals, right? In the end, we didn't do uh, the chloroquine version of Cron coronation. And had we rushed into it, we would probably have wasted our time and the time of the participants. The um, it's 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 probably better to do more in terms of preclinical data as well as small phase two trials prior to jumping to large phase three trials. We have also seen that in the late stage treatment trials with um, the recovery uh, trial, for example, where quite a few uh, treatments have actually not shown any benefits, right? Including, uh, including chloroquine, if I remember correctly, in uh, late stage, uh, stage COVID-19. So that would be learning number one, that we definitely have to um, do our homework before launching into large phase three trials. Uh, second learning, the influence of external factors on these trials, right? What has happened with um, the Sergifer fiasco, NHEM and the Lancet, these sort of things are extremely counterproductive and should never have happened, but hopefully will these sort of mistakes won't happen again in the future. And I do hope that uh, these journals who that are supposed to be 
uh, top journals in the world have um, have adjusted and obviously have learned from uh, from this mistake. I'm not saying that mistakes do not happen, but hopefully they they have learned from it. Uh, other uh, another learning is that it's really challenging, logistically speaking, to develop a new trial or a new platform in the space of a couple of months, especially for trials you need that are for, for, for which this is not a specialism, right? We are not Pfizer, <laughs> effectively. Excellent points. Now, I notice that um, it's got to two o'clock. We're all slaves to the clock. Um, I, it just remains to me to thank you, Hakeem, for an absolutely excellent and stimulating um, uh, talk. Thank everybody for um, joining us today. Um, please look out for the results of these studies. I'm pretty confident that they're going to get exposure in the national press, and I'm sure they'll be um, they'll be uh, distributed amongst um, um, uh, you know through more conventional UCL lines. Um, best of luck with the rest of your day, everybody. Keep safe, and thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks again, Hakeem. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a good day.